This episode is sponsored by 5.11, a company that I've used for well over a decade and continue to use to this day. And 5.11 is offering you guys, the audience of the Behind the Shield podcast, a discount on every purchase you make with them. Before we get to that code, I want to highlight a couple of products that, again, I personally use today. One of the most impressive products they just released is their Rush Backpack 2.0. Now, for many of you, whether you're going to the fire station, the police station, whether you're traveling with your family, whether you're taking training courses, we have to fly, we have to drive, we have to take trains. And I have to say, I own multiple backpacks, many of uh, 5.11's different ones, but as far as a day pack, this one was the most impressive. There are so many different compartments. The way it sits on your back is incredibly comfortable. If you are a concealed carry person, there's also a spot for a weapon. So they've thought of multiple, multiple things that a man or woman would have to do on a daily basis. That is in addition to all of the products that I talk about a lot. Their uniforms fit for men or fit for women in the first responder professions. The footwear that they offer, whether it's the Norris sneaker or the Atlas system that is designed for foot health and therefore knees and back and hips and shoulders and neck. As a civilian, I live in a lot of their clothes as well. Their jeans stretch. You can actually squat down in them. We live in Florida here, so I wear a lot of their shorts, which again, very, very lightweight material. You can get it wet and it will dry almost immediately. And then moving to the fitness and tactical space, I used to have just a regular weight vest. Recently, I switched to a 511 vest and actually bought ballistic plates as well. My thinking was simply, if I'm going to have a vest, why not have one that protects me as well? And that TAC vest is trusted by law enforcement all around the country. So I mentioned they were going to offer you a discount code. So if you go to 511tactical.com and enter the code SHIELD15, S-H-I-E-L-D-1-5, you'll get 15% off not just that one purchase, but every time you visit their store. And if you want to learn more about 5.11, their mission, their products, then listen to episode 338 of the Behind the Shield podcast with the CEO and founder, Francisco Morales. Welcome to episode 501 of Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and this week it is my absolute honor to welcome back Dr. Chris Colvin. Now, I brought Chris on for a very specific reason. There has been so much misinformation, so much fear, so many myths created around this new strain of the virus and the impact of it. And I wanted to find someone who would be a voice that many of you would trust. Chris is not only an ER physician in a busy city, he's also their EMS director. He is a veteran, and he also worked on the victims of the Fort Hood terror attacks. On top of that, This is a physician who I saw in the middle of the Texas ice storm go by foot from his home several miles to his ER so he could take care of his staff and the patients. So this is a man who's in the trenches and who truly cares and understands our population. So what I'm seeing out there, these mandates are just creating more fear and a giant pushback because damn right we don't want to be told that we have to put things in our body. The answer is us understanding what the hell we're being asked to put in our body in the first place and the impact of being vaccinated or not being vaccinated. Chris and Joseph Ibrahim and David Hindle and so many of these physicians I've had on the show are telling me the same thing. A vast, vast, vast majority of patients that are very, very ill or dying are unvaccinated. So this new variant, this Delta that, you know, was a buzzword that I didn't understand as an ex-phys grad, as a firefighter paramedic, I didn't understand a lot of the stuff that was going around. But our men and women are dying 
and nearly all of them are unvaccinated. So that needs to be told. Whatever you feel, that has to be acknowledged that there is an impact of this vaccination that is now a year old that, you know, I ultimately chose to have a little bit later on when I saw what happened, when I did the research, when I asked some of my peers that I trusted. And now we're seeing that it is working. And so what I want to do is not persuade 100% because there is a group that no matter what anyone says, they don't want to be vaccinated. And that is the power of choice. But there are so many of us, I think, that are on the fence because we don't understand that. And you come at us with mandatory orders and now you just ruined any trust that we had before. So Chris is going to talk about so many of the things that we see over and over again in these polarizing discussions. The safety of the vaccine, how these vaccines work, the different types, the efficacy, pregnancy, the myth around ivermectin, and so much more. So I urge you, be patient, let the walls stay down, and listen at the end of the two hours. Whatever your choice, at least it will be an informed choice, not a choice based on fear or pushing back from government overreach, which we see over and over again. Before we get to this very important conversation, please just take a moment, go to whichever app you listen to this on, subscribe to the show, leave feedback, and leave a rating. Each five-star rating truly elevates this podcast, making it more visible for others to find. And this is a free library of over 500 episodes now. So all I ask in return is that you pay it forward and share these incredible men and women's stories so I can get them to everyone else who needs to hear them. So with that being said, I welcome back Dr. Chris Colvin. Enjoy. Well, Chris, I want to start by saying welcome back to the podcast for the third time. Um, this is going to be a very important conversation. This is an episode I'm going to push out almost immediately because it needs to be heard now. Um, you know, I've seen your video and what you're seeing in Texas. I've spoken to friends in Orlando who are ER physicians in Wisconsin. Um, and, you know, regardless of what the whole country is seeing, because we're this giant landmass, um, you know, there's, there's, there's a lot of life being lost again in the hospitals with this other, this current streak that we're seeing. So, um, I want to preface our entire conversation with this is about trying to put good information out there. Um, you know, the, the, the choice being taken away, I am vehemently opposed to, but I think as we discussed before, there's a large percentage of people that probably haven't chosen the vaccine, for example, purely because they don't trust the information that's come out. It's contradicting itself. It's, it's coming from, you know, these, these political agendas rather than from, you know, from trusted sources. So prefacing this entire conversation, welcome back to the show and thank you so much for coming on tonight. Oh, thanks for having me, man. I really enjoy it. Thank you. So let's start with what you're seeing because, um, you know, again, someone standing in, in a small town in, in Idaho or, you know, whatever country in the world, a rural area is going to have a very different lens than, you know, a suburban or urban ER. So tell, tell everyone again where you are and then, and then tell us about this, this current upswing through Chris Colvin's eyes. Yeah, so, you know, I'm in Central Texas, and to give everybody some context, um, 
I mean, really just probably about 10 days ago. I'm not sure the data is at the end of this week. Uh, but Texas and Florida made up almost 40 percent uh, of the new cases of COVID in the United States. And out of those, like they took 5,000 samples out of Florida. Um, and out of those 5,000 samples out of Florida, 80% of the cases were Delta. And so I think that as we talk about what's really happening on the ground level, then there's all of these side debates and arguments about every piece of the data. And I think that you can break it down into blocks. And I think starters, let's talk about how the healthcare system's overwhelmed. Because I think that's something that's universal and, and, and just applicable to everybody. Everybody has to have health care at some point. And as we get older, we tend to utilize it uh, even more. Um, and so what's happening right now, especially in the state of Texas, is that um, just about all of our hospitals are over capacity. Um, in the Dallas-Fort Worth area, uh, for example, the county judge, uh, which makes the decision on uh, on what level of response of COVID there, there needs to be. Um, a few days ago was on CNN saying there's no pediatric ICU beds for any kids anywhere in the greater Dallas-Fort Worth area, which means all these kids were in ICUs because of COVID, um, because of their age. Uh, most of, if not all of them, were unvaccinated. And so that meant that if your son, uh, your 12-year-old, was in a bad car wreck, um, that was going to impact uh, his care. Um, if your child was just diagnosed with a brain tumor, there's no ICU beds for this child to go, so he would probably delay the brain surgery. So obviously very uh, direct uh, negative impact on everyone else outside of the COVID bubble. So the hospitals are overwhelmed for a number of things. M many large facilities don't have vents, for one. And what we're seeing with Delta is uh, a multitude of things, but we're seeing a lot of people that are just having catastrophic respiratory failure, uh, more so than even what we saw last year. So we're looking at how bad and how severe this disease process is. And so we're using up ICU beds and we're using up vents. And so that's a very, very important concept to understand because anything that's significant or life-threatening and we rescue from that and, and we resuscitate you from that, you're going to be in an ICU for, for days or weeks after whatever happens. If it's a if it's a ruptured aneurysm in the brain, if it's um, you know, a bad heart attack, a, a massive stroke, uh, car wrecks, you know, you get a, a bloodstream infection from something else. All of these things require an ICU bed for you aside from COVID, and we don't have those beds. Uh, secondarily with that is a, a relative nursing shortage. And I talked about that um, on, a, on a TikTok video that I put out there. And it, it is a multitude of things, but it has to do with how difficult last year was and how much more difficult this year has become. And so a lot of our nursing staff are just exhausted. And it was estimated in some nursing journals up to a third of the nursing workforce has kind of dropped out of the clinical bedside. Um, some of them are going to advanced uh, degrees like nurse practitioners. Some of them are just taking a break altogether um, and but still want to do nursing just in a different um, aspect. And some people have left healthcare uh, entirely. And so that's a, that's impacting a lot of this as well. Um, and, and so not only do you not have IC beds or vents, you don't have the nursing staff at the bedside, and then you have this huge severity of illness. So then what that does to the ER, which is really what most people see, if they ever have to go to a hospital, most people don't have to end up in an ICU. But they go to an ER for a lot of things. If they 
happen to, to hit their hand with a nail gun or if uh, you know their daughter falls off a bicycle and, and breaks her wrist or your grandmother falls and breaks her hip, all of you are going to go to the ER for that. Well, what's happening in the emergency departments now is that they're full of ICU patients on vents that can't go to the ICU because the ICU is full. And this is called ED boarding or emergency department boarding. Um, and, and now we have ICU patients in the ER and we no longer have ER beds. So this is impacting all of the emergency departments in all the hospitals that are over capacity. Uh, in, in the past on a prior podcast, you and I did, you know, I talked about tertiary centers and how community hospitals refer the sickest of the sick and the more complicated patients into the large trauma centers or the large stroke centers and whatnot. Well, our current large tertiary center is 165% of capacity, 165% of capacity. They're not accepting any transfers into their facility, traumas or anything else because they can't. And so it is now uh, impacting everybody. People are sitting in the waiting room of emergency departments across our state and many uh, uh, states that are kind of hotbeds for COVID and they're waiting 12, 15, 20 hours in the waiting room at times. And so all of us in medical leadership are trying to be flexible. We all have um, mass cow drills that we do and disaster management drills, but you can't be in a disaster management state of mind for 18 months. Like you just, it's not possible. Everything that you see for flexing up and surging is for the, you know, the, the busload of children that has a head-on collision. I mean, those kinds of mass cow events is what you kind of train and gear up for. And we've been in an infectious disease mass cal event now for a year and a half. And so this is really hurting all of the healthcare in our community. So I think where a good place to start would be, you know, describing the Delta variant because, um, you know, again, we get these buzzwords. And even for me, you know, I, I, coming from a very basal level of science um, with an ex-phys degree being a paramedic it's kind of just enough just enough information information to be dangerous to myself you know so there's there's some of the science that really doesn't compute the way it's been presented to us so what is the difference initially between that first wave that we had you know um, at the beginning and, and then for a few months after that to to this now how how are they dissimilar and why is the second one seemingly more severe i think I think leading into that, I think it's important right now, especially as a country on this topic, that we've really forced everyone into one of two groups. It's either left or right, black or white, red or blue, and that the answers and the truth are more nuanced. It doesn't mean that they're indeterminate or that they're waxing and waning in their, um, in their truth. It's the fact that the answers are very complicated, and I think that messaging these complicated truths to people is what has made everything so confusing. And so I think a lot of things that I see from people or hear from people online or in person as to why they're just they're just sick of COVID or they don't know who to trust is because they felt like in the beginning there was a stepwise progression, right? And, and they laid it out very simply, or at least they tried to, that if we stay at home for a month, this will go away, right? You remember that messaging? It was like, we only have to, to shut down the economy in the world for, for a month, and we should see a big impact. And then when that started not happening because you had a mixture of how that actually went into play, then that message failed, right? Even though having people stay at home 
even though closing things down to prevent direct exposure made a, an impact on the disease, it had a bunch of negative impacts, right? And so then there's this debate about the mask, you wear a mask or not. So then finally, you know, you got to remember I'd been working in this now for almost a year. And every time I went to work, every time, I knew there's a very good chance I would get this and I could die. That's a very hard thing to do. It's no different than what soldiers and police officers and firefighters do. All different severity of, of, of crises that you face. But when you're dealing with infectious diseases, you know, you got to remember last year we lost almost 4,000 healthcare workers from COVID that had been exposed to that virus in the work environment. So for a year, we're all working in all of this with limited protective equipment, limited gear, trying to do our best. Finally, this vaccine is going through these trials and it is amazing. It is it is very promising. We're very, very excited about it. And, uh, I mean, to this day, I mean, I got my first shot on Christmas Eve of 2020. It was the best Christmas present ever. Um, and, and I just remember literally just having uh, tears in my eyes because I felt like I finally had a chance to protect myself more than just a mask and some gloves. And so things have changed with the vaccine. And so all of that is the background. We lead now into this variant called Delta. Now, they're using the Greek alphabet, and they're talking about the progression and the changes and everything that we do. And so using differences, I'm going to talk about how Delta spreads, what the vaccines do against Delta versus the other subtypes. And I think that's where a lot of this confusion and controversy happens. So when these vaccines came out last year, and then when we started rolling it out real time uh, in real life, uh, citizens and healthcare workers and whatnot, we were seeing an efficacy or an efficiency rate where it could protect you from even contracting COVID at all with the alpha variant, upwards of 94, 96%. Each study had a little bit of a statistical change, but basically it's say 95%. Well, you still have to remember that that's 95%. There's still 5% of people that may still get a breakthrough infection after uh, the, the two shots in the series. And specifically what I'm talking about for us, there, even throughout this talk is Moderna and Pfizer. Um, AstraZeneca was in Canada and, and Europe and a lot of other places. We didn't really use that much here. And then there's the J and J vaccine, uh, which is also used in, in, in the States. When we looked at Moderna and Pfizer, for example, they're in the mid nineties of, of efficiency. And just as a comparison, um, our flu vaccines on, in a good year um, are like low 70s uh, on efficiency. Um, and that's why people say, I got the flu shot, I still got the flu, right? You hear that a lot. And they're like, why do I even get this thing? Well, to use that flu analogy, the reason why you get the flu shot is that no one ends up getting the flu after the flu shot really dies from the flu. Like we noticed that uh, for years, that the people that were dying from H1N1, for example, were unvaccinated. So... Moving back to the COVID uh, concept and looking at the vaccines that were created, vac vaccines um, will always have a percentage of how much they can protect. There's always going to be a group of people that don't mount a, 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 an antibody response to the vaccine. So in other words, you get the vaccine. The vaccine's job is to prepare your body to mount a defense so that when it's exposed to the real thing, it can do its job and protect you. And so the vaccine is like a simulator and that simulator 
is training your immune system to prepare for the real event. And that's all vaccines do. And so if your body is incapable of responding to the simulation, um, you won't have a good defense for it. Where we're seeing that happen, especially with Delta, are in patients that are immunosuppressed. So if they have rheumatoid arthritis, multiple sclerosis, uh, lupus, uh, I had a patient I had to put on a vent and, and died um, within the last you know couple of weeks, and, and uh, that person had lupus, and they were, they were on immunosuppressive uh, drugs. And so they still got COVID. And so all of that is to say that when I think about the controversies about Delta, and people are like, how bad is Delta? Why is Delta different? Um, it's different in a few things so far as it is much more transmissible than the regular COVID. In fact, the comparisons that you look at the studies, they say about two to two and a half times uh, easier to transmit Delta versus the alpha variant of COVID. Uh, I think, you know, people, when they put out the data, they they try to give something comparative and it's as as contagious as chickenpox. So it is more contagious, the Delta variant is, than the alpha variant. Secondly, with the Delta variant, the vaccines we have are still very, very effective against Delta but a little bit lower, so closer to 90% now. So we dropped about five percentage points. So now you got about 10% of the population that can still uh, not have the protective effects of the vaccine per se. Um, and, and so then you, know, you take 100 people uh, in a room and you're gonna have 10 of them, even after being vaccinated, are still gonna get it. Um, and so people are like, well, the vaccines don't work. Well, they, they work phenomenally well. Um, because what we've seen is not only is 90% protection amazing. I mean, imagine going to Las Vegas and somebody said on your next hand of cards, you have a 90% or 95% chance of winning that next hand. I mean, is there anybody in the world who would say those are phenomenal odds? I mean, those are phenomenal. Um, but it is very protective, not only in preventing you from getting the infection, but then if you happen to be the small minority of people that maybe didn't generate an immune response or there's some other factors involved with your health personally and you still get COVID even after the full series, you're still protected from severe disease and death. And I think that's a very, very important thing to kind of hammer home is that if COVID never killed anybody, I mean, think about this. If it didn't kill anybody, like the death rate of COVID was zero, we wouldn't worry about COVID at all. And, and so it is killing people and it is, is impossible to slow down and stop once someone's so sick from it that they're on life support, they almost all die. I mean, there are stories and, and stuff of them surviving, but you have to remember that a lot of these people end up being on trachs or now they're dependent on oxygen. And, and then that's, you know, what we call the comorbidities and whatnot that happen after the disease. So there's still a lot of badness that happened from it. So the vaccine is very protective against Delta from you getting it. It's very protective in saving your life and protecting you from severe disease if you're vaccinated. But it is much more transmissible. And so when they looked at Delta and people that were vaccinated, and this is where I'm getting into, this is where the controversy starts, right? This is when people feel like the CDC or the World Health Organization keep changing their language. They studied Delta and there were small groups of people where everyone was vaccinated. They all had different kind of medical issues. You know, a lot of these people, they got it, but then they got Delta. And then it appears that the viral load 
which is really what makes someone contagious, the viral load of Delta was almost as high in a vaccinated patient as it is in an unvaccinated patient. So when people hear that at first, they think, well, then the vaccine's done nothing for me if the viral load is the same, but that's not true. You're still protected from severe disease, the severity of illness and death. And most of the people that happen to get Delta, their symptoms are so mild, they don't even think they have it. And so that's where the whole, hey, you told me if I get vaccinated, I don't have to wear masks, but now I'm vaccinated and now you're telling me the masks have to go back on, right? That's where a lot of controversy comes from. And the whole concept there was that people who were going to be safe and saved because of the vaccine, but still had a breakthrough infection of Delta could pass it to other people because the viral loads are higher versus the alpha variant where the viral loads were, were profoundly suppressed by the vaccine, which meant that if you had the alpha variant, the likelihood of you transmitting COVID after you got vaccinated, the likelihood of you transmitting the virus was excessively low. That's not so much the case now with Delta. And so at this point, everyone starts asking, well, how did Delta get here? Now, there's a lot of, a lot of, a lot of crazy things out there on the internet, and we can address some of these, these ideas down the road, but a lot of people felt like, well, we didn't get Delta until the vaccine showed up, right? And so people have a, kind of have a bias there. They have a selection bias, and they think there's a temporal relationship there. Well, the issue is, is that this virus mutates. For this virus to have the ability to mutate and replicate, it has to have a host. And so the reality is, is that the large pool of unvaccinated people in the country served as the host for this virus to mutate and eventually evolve into the Delta variant. So the Delta variant actually came from unvaccinated patients in that if you look at the country as a whole, because you got to remember up to about a week ago, only about 50 to 51 percent of the country is vaccinated. So half of the country is potentially serving as this reservoir for the virus to not only mutate again and to continue to replicate and survive, but then that virus, uh, you know, has the opportunity to even adapt to future therapies or future vaccines that we have. And so the vaccine did not cause Delta. The vaccine does not spread Delta. The vaccine does not make uh, someone a super spreader at all. Um, it just means that they can transmit Delta if they happen to be a small percentage of patients that still get a breakthrough infection. And so that's the difference between the other subtypes when we think about the original alpha and now we think about Delta. And Delta is just easier to transmit and it seems to be hitting the younger patients excessively hard. I have had 20-year-olds that have died on vents. We've we have transferred 20 and 30 year old young, healthy people, no medical problems, some of them active duty. So they're passing their PT tests and doing PT all the time. Um, and they end up on life support. Some of them end up on ECMO, um, which is you just taking the whole heart and lung system and, and oxygenating the blood for the patient uh, through a machine and, and a complex circuit, um, which requires a lot of blood products. And even then they usually don't survive that. Um, these are extreme measures to try to save these young people and they're dying from this and we didn't see that last year we saw a lot of the older people and you know that 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 concept of hey you know dietary health uh, obesity high blood pressure smoking all that kind of stuff and age they all still contribute significantly like they do to all of the diseases 
all these other comorbidities make the severity of the illness much worse. But now we're seeing it in people that are very young and healthy and very active, but they're unvaccinated unequivocally across the board. And I'm so thankful the big hospital systems out there are doing this. A lot of hospitals were squeamish in the beginning about releasing their data, but hospital after hospital after hospital, when you look at the San Diego numbers, when you look at uh, the state of Arkansas and the children's hospital there, when you look at uh, Georgia, Mississippi, Florida, Texas, all these numbers that are coming out, they're not even putting the numbers out anymore because no, they know nobody cares. They put out these graphs, and these are the graphs that you're seeing on the news now or, or social media, wherever you find it, where you'll have like 140 red dots of unvaccinated people in the ICU, and then you'll have four blue dots of vaccinated patients in the ICU, right? I don't know if you've seen some of these diagrams, but it is categorically across the board in, in different communities, different states, uh, you know, different um, makeup and, and heterogeneous, you know, patient population. And yet the numbers are all coming to the same conclusions that overwhelmingly, without a doubt, unquestionably, people that are unvaccinated are the ones ending up in the ICU and hospitalized. You know, there's there's lies about how the, it's all vaccinated people in hospitals from the vaccine. It's not. Let me just and jump in there. Sorry for a yeah. second, because I, otherwise I think I'll forget about adding this. So Joe, who's in um, a hospital in Orlando, uh, and a medical director, he was saying that even some of the vaccinated cases, they weren't in the ICU for COVID. They were actually in for something else, but they test them when they're admitted. And so they were COVID positive. But it actually wasn't even COVID that they were there for. It was, you know, as you mentioned, whether it was a stroke, car accident, you know, pre-surgical. So, you know, is that something that you've also seen in your local area? Yes. And, and there's probably, you know, people that listen to your podcast, they, it's probably happened to them or people they know where literally the patient will say, I didn't even, I didn't even know I had COVID. You know, like they had no symptoms, like they didn't even know and they had been vaccinated and what we typically do is we'll screen all of our admissions that come in the hospital uh, for COVID because most hospitals have tried to coalesce their COVID patients on similar sides of the hospital as best they can. And so, yes, a lot of people are just completely asymptomatic. They have no idea. Um, and uh, and they're, they are there for something completely different. Um, and it turns out they have COVID again. Like I had a, I had a wonderful I, I, I try not to give ages or identifiers, but I wish I could because of HIPAA, but a very, very sweet geriatric patient the other day. And the only reason why she came into the ER um, was she felt like she had a urinary tract infection and she felt a little bit weaker than normal. So long story short, she had already been vaccinated uh, with Pfizer a few months ago um, and had the usual, you know, old person stuff, you know, high cholesterol, high blood pressure, but was very thin and and whatnot. Anyway, so she did have a bladder infection and she did have COVID. And so we talked about some of that. And so then all the questions kind of came out, well, what do I do now if I've been vaccinated? Um, how does this work? And all this other kind of stuff. And so, you know, I talked with her, of course, and, and you know, she lives at home alone and same kind of principles apply when you're positive and not being vaccinated. Um, but I also got to tell her all the good news that she was going to be protected and be safe. I didn't have to admit her because her oxygen saturations were 100%. Her chest x-ray was beautiful. You know, she just felt a little bit more tired than normal. And that was it. And uh, I followed up on her. Uh, what's today? Thursday. I followed up on her on Tuesday. 
uh, which was almost a full week to, to the time that I saw her and she was doing phenomenal and had no issues. And so overwhelmingly the people that are in the ICU are the sickest ones, um, easily anywhere. And, and there's lots of data out there right now. And I encourage everybody to look at it. I've been telling everybody, uh, my favorite show when I was a kid was reading rainbow. Um, and, and his tagline used to always be, but don't take my word for it. Like read it yourself. And the science is so real that people can look at these original studies and see, and you're seeing 90 to 95% or higher of ICU admissions, all hospitalizations, uh, uh, life support admissions, all unvaccinated, all of them unvaccinated. And so I think that that should at least bring home the point that at minimum, if you think there's a good chance for whatever your personal health is or whatnot or your age, um, and that there's a really good chance if you're not vaccinated, you'll end up in the ICU. There is a good chance for that. Um, and if you're young and healthy, the problem is we can't predict if you're going to be that 22 year old that ends up on a ventilator because you don't have any medical problems. Theoretically, you don't have any risk factors, but Delta is just a little bit different in the way that it is progressing with everybody. So I, I've admitted and just in the last few days, I've admitted probably 15, 16 patients. And I'd say at least the, probably about a dozen of those are between the ages of 30 and 45. So it's just a much younger demographic. And I always caution people, you know, don't use my anecdotal, my personal experiences as data. But the data is out there that actually verifies that as well. And so you have a lot of these people that may get COVID, but they've been vaccinated and a lot of them don't even know they have it. And we just found it because we were screening them for it for other reasons. Beautiful. Well, that's, you know, that's, that's an important point to, to hear. Now, the, the reason I think that, that, uh, you know, I first became aware of this, um, flaring up again was one of two things. Obviously seeing your videos and not only, you know, the, the actual deaths, but the impact. I mean, you looked just exhausted. You know, you looked burnt out. Um, so, you know, it, it's affecting our people. And what worries me is, and I've said this right from March of last year, to me, a vulnerable population are the first responders because that's what this whole show is about. The impact of sleep deprivation and stress and, you know, all these things. So, but, you know, this mandatory push has happened now. Oh, you know, if you don't get vaccinated, you're going to be fired is such a horrendous slap in the face as well. And what worries me is there's going to be a group of people that come hell or high water, they're not taking a vaccine. And that's why we live in America. You know what I mean? There's freedom of choice, and I totally get that. And when you see, I saw a video of, I think I'm assuming it was Australia, some kid being literally dragged from their parent and taken off to another room to get vaccinated. You know, the issue is, if if people aren't trusting it, then, um, you know, then you're having the force. So that tells me that we've done a horrible job at educating a lot of people. And there's, there's the ones that aren't going to get it regardless. And, and, you know, that's the freedom of choice. But then there's a portion, I think, and we talked about this the other day, that I think would if they were given the right information and it wouldn't have to be forced. Um, and so, you know, that's what I want to do with this conversation was to try and bring just some middle of the rose facts. I ended up getting vaccinated, but it was a while. It was after I spoke to you and Joe and, you know, some of the other guests that I had on mm-hmm. and you explained it to me. Well, most people don't have a podcast where they get to talk to ER physicians, you know, they, they, right. they have to rely on all the fucking awful television that they have. Um, so. Yeah, again, let's, let's expand on that. What other, what other things have you seen 
that you see causing fear, causing hesitation that you can bring to this conversation to try and appease some of those fears so people will choose to be vaccinated? So I, I think that, you know, you, you bring up the question of um, what about people that are not, you know, totally against the vaccine, but they're just concerned and they're hesitant because they don't know who to believe. I think that's when, when we talk about these these pandemics, you know, we're talking about two pandemics. You know, we're talking about not just the virus, but this pandemic of misinformation that's out there. And that's caused a lot of stress and worry and, and indecision. And that's all understandable because now you have these people that can get on a social platform and they can start spouting things that aren't true and just opinions. And then because people have a tendency because of their own biases to find things that support their biases, if they find somebody out there who says, hey, this vaccine magnetizes your blood, um, then they, they push that out there and they share it with their friends and family. And that's how stuff like that um, gets spread. And so the doctors, we've been so busy fighting the virus that we haven't really been able to be out there and start fighting all this misinformation. And so really the medical community is kind of behind this conspiracy theorists that are out there. And so a lot of these ideas have taken hold in the public. And, and it, it breaks my heart because I'm getting people that are dying and they're, they're begging me for the vaccine at that moment. And that's not how vaccines work. You know, like I said earlier, the vaccine is a simulator. It's preparing your body for the real world scenario that you're going to face. And that if you don't give your body at least a month or so to go through that simulation, it's not going to happen. So here are some things about misinformation that are very common that I'd like to kind of at least address and then give people sources that um, they don't necessarily have to take my word for it. Um, you know, as a as a summary, again, you know, it's I've been doing this for a long time. I've been board certified twice in emergency medicine. Um, you know, I graduated from medical school uh, back in 2003, finished my residency in 2006. Uh, and this is what I do. I mean, my entire adult life has been about saving people and trying to take care of people. And I think the first thing I, I want to point out, and it, it, it breaks my heart to hear stuff like this, but especially for emergency medicine physicians and ICU doctors who are the two largest groups of physicians that are managing this COVID pandemic, um, we, we're not getting paid anything to support a vaccine. We're not getting paid anything uh, or, or taking money under a table or trying to, to uh, propose uh, some concept to get the entire public vaccinated. The only reason why we're doing that is because we're watching people die and we're tired of watching people die. And that's it. There's, there's no financial benefit in, in supporting and encouraging the use of this vaccine. I think that's very important to put out there. You know, one of the reasons why I chose emergency medicine is that I could take care of people regardless if they had insurance or not. And in my area, it's a poorer community in central Texas. I mean, almost 40% of our patients are uninsured, what they call self-pay, meaning they don't have any kind of insurance and they're probably not going to pay at all. And we still give them phenomenal care the same as we would the CEO of Procter & Gamble. Right. And so that's what I love about emergency medicine. And so that's that's where our hearts are in trying to get people to take these vaccines because we're tired of all the death. We're tired of all the sadness. We're tired of, of, of all the horrible things that we're seeing happen to the good people in our community. So one of the first things to talk about about the misinformation is that the vaccine 
uh, you know, people say the vaccine is not effective. Well, I kind of touched on that a little bit in the beginning. It is very effective. You know, we're talking 90 to 95% effective in protecting you. Um, there was a recent study. There's a lot of studies I would recommend to look at. If you don't like the CDC, that's kind of a different issue. We can always talk about the CDC issues. Go to reputable sources like the New England Journal of Medicine, which is a very well-respected medical journal. They've provided all of their COVID literature, all of their studies, all the newest publicated information and made it free to the public. You just go to their website and you can pull up all of the new articles they just published. And to run through some of those, they've studied, uh, it was around 3,500 healthcare workers that were vaccinated and 91% of them were protected from COVID. And that is in a COVID dense, high viral load uh, environment. You're surrounded by it. We're not talking about the, you know, the, the random person you bump into at Walmart who has COVID. But all of our patients have COVID. And this vaccine was highly protective. In, and in the few people that had a breakthrough in very mild, very minor symptoms, and the reason why they got it is because their antibody response to the vaccine was very low. So when we talk about people who still get COVID after having the vaccine, it's usually because their body didn't generate enough antibodies after that simulation. And so that's people that have, you know, lupus and rheumatoid arthritis and multiple sclerosis, people that are on immunosuppressive medications and they just couldn't mount an immune response, but they were still protected even though they got it and their antibody response was low. So the vaccine is highly effective at that. Um, when people talk about how Delta can be transmitted in a vaccinated patient, that is true. Thankfully, it's a minority of people that will actually guilt Delta after being vaccinated to begin with. That's why vaccinated should still wear masks because they have almost no symptoms now because they're so protected by the vaccine that they may unknowingly spread it to someone else. However, and here's where I put the big parentheses, I bold it, I underline it, I put all the exclamation marks. People who get the vaccine are not super spreaders. People who get the vaccine are not spreading Delta because of the vaccine. That's a very, very important concept to get in people's minds, that this vaccine is very good, very protective. Now, when we get into how good is it, is it good enough, does it even do its job, I feel like we've answered that question really well. And there's lots of data out there that is very, very good studies that I encourage everyone to read. Um, and so you can go to New England Journal of Medicine, you go to Medline, you can go to PubMed. Um, these are scientific journal sources that physicians go to to look at newest studies. So it is very effective. So let's answer that question. All right. It's effective. Now, what about side effects? Now, that's really where you see a lot of hesitancy in wanting to get the vaccine. I would say that in about, you know, if a third of our of our population uh, let's say 40%, you know, there's some, some early data that shows that we might be at about 60%, maybe a little bit higher, uh, of America has been vaccinated, uh, up through, uh, last week. Um, and so let's say 40% now is unvaccinated. Well, about two thirds of that group, I would say are vaccine hesitant. Um, and like you alluded to before, there's another third that no matter what you say or do, they're never going to get this vaccine. They never get the flu vaccine. They don't like vaccines, whatever. You're just never going to get it. The population that we really have to reach to fight this misinformation campaign that has been out there on social media is the two-thirds of that 40% of Americans that are just hesitant and just want a little bit more information. They just want a little bit more time. 
They just want to know that it's safe. And that is all completely understandable. So is it safe? It's extremely safe. One of the things that I get from even some nurses and healthcare professionals that, that use this, um, this vaccine adverse event report system or VAERS um, is that anybody can put something into the VAERS database. Anybody, anybody. In fact, people are putting uh, uh, things in there that, that COVID caused a car wreck or that COVID gave them herpes, this kind of stuff. Well, those aren't real, right? Those aren't real cases. And so you can't use VAERS as a database um, as, as science. You can't do that. And so the people that are using that to support their claims that the vaccine is not safe, they're using bad data and they're lying to you when they use that. You can even go to the VAERS website and you'll see there's a huge disclaimer on the front page that says, this is not science. This is not good data. Anyone can submit this. It does not mean this data has been verified or validated. So it's like so Wikipedia, it, basically. It's it. Everyone calls it the Wikipedia uh, uh, of, of medicine because anybody can do whatever they want. So here's what's important to understand, and, and, and we can kind of, you know, dive in this a little bit because I think this is what I see a lot when people say it's not safe because I have nurses telling me, you know, my, my cousin's a nurse. And, and he says that in bears, there's, there's all these, these bad outcomes. What happens is that's a, that's a data dump. It's a dumpster of just random garbage. And there is some good salvageable data in that. And so what happens is physicians and committees and, and with the CDC, they take all that information. And then they have clinical physicians and scientists look at each individual patient's case and their charts and their lab values and everything else. And most of the time, the majority of those cases that were filed had nothing to do with the vaccine. Okay. Then they look at the subset of people. They think, hey, this could have something to do with the vaccine. Let's go through now and analyze it as, as a team and a committee of experts and see what are we seeing and how can we do a statistical analysis to see if there's some validity to this. So I'll refer you to another site. And it's the CDC website. They're very transparent with this. In fact, they just put out some recent safety data on the vaccines, and they tell you all the good and the bad about it. And we'll get in, we can get into some of that if you want to talk about some of those things. But they take what's in bears, and then they authenticate the data. They throw out all the stuff that has nothing to do with the vaccine. And then they look at the things that might have something to do with the vaccine. And then they study it, and they publish the data when it's verifiable that, hey, there is some things that we're seeing with this vaccine that we don't see in other vaccines. And then they publish that publicly for transparency. So the public, the layperson right now, while they're listening to your podcast, can go on their computer and they can pull up the CDC website. They can pull up the safety profiles of the vaccines and they give you all the nuts and bolts. And they'll tell you that if you look at the J&J &J vaccine, it's about 70, 75% effective uh, when it comes to COVID, the alpha type. But there seems to be an association, a very small one, about four cases in a million. So think about the hundreds of millions of people that we vaccinated so far. They're thinking around four cases, plus or minus, may be associated with Guillain-Barre, which is a rare uh, disorder that is associated with vaccines and viral infections at times. But the risk is so exceedingly low and so just completely below the threshold of safety that unequivocally they say this vaccine, the benefit of this vaccine significantly outweighs 
the high unlikelihood, the very, very small percentage chance that this would happen uh, in anybody with the vaccine. And they say the same thing about myocarditis. You know, um, with uh, Pfizer, they can give kids vaccines all the way down to age 12. Well, in, in, in these late teenage boys between 18 and like early 20s, they found a few cases of myocarditis. And so they evaluated those cases. And the good news is, and you can read it right now, out of all the cases of myocarditis, everybody went home. There was a little bit of inflammation around the tissue of the heart, which sounds serious, but in these young, healthy people, they'll have a little bit of changes in their bloodstream with their, their cardiac enzymes, and they all go home. Every single one of them went home. So they didn't die from it at all. And so they're being as transparent as they can be with all the data that they get, and they look at all of it. They look at bears for everything, and this vaccine is exceedingly safe. It is completely uh, exceeded any hope that we had for a vaccine. When we started getting this data that it was going to be 90%, 95% effective, that's almost unheard of. It's just, it's incredible. And so the safety is amazing. And now think about this for everyone who tells me, I just want more time. Well, it's been out for over a year now. I got my first vaccine December 24th. So I got it on Christmas Eve, 2020. I cried like a baby. I was so excited. I lived for a year in COVID thinking that I was probably going to die the next time I went into work. And that I was just accepting that. It's like, that's fine. You know, I'm married. I got kids. I guess it's my time to go. But when that vaccine became available and I knew the data behind it, you're darn right. I jumped right in line. I was one of the first group of people at our hospital to get the vaccine because I believed in it that much because the data and the science did not lie. It was very real. So it is very effective. It is very safe. These things that you see people saying, oh, you know, it, 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 it kills people, it's destroying people, all this other kind of stuff, all that gets filed and all of it is being reviewed. And the fact is, it's not killing people and it's not causing all these terrible side effects. There are a few small side effects in a very, very teeny tiny, less than 0.05% of the patient population, very, very rare, but you see it in a lot of different things. And to give you an idea for context for medicine, Lots of things we give you are not 100% safe. That doesn't mean that you stop taking your heart medication or that you stop taking your blood thinner uh, or you, start, you stop taking your high, your high blood pressure medication. Um, I don't know if you've ever seen it, but one of the very common side effects that can be life-threatening and deadly with ACE inhibitor blood pressure medications like Captopril, Lisinopril, Enalapril, any of the things that ends in Pril, people can get angioedema. And so their tongue and their lips can swell up so bad they can't breathe, they can't swallow, and it's an airway emergency for us. And that's very common. But we use lisinopril on everybody. You know why? Because the significant benefit of lisinopril in saving people's life and the impact it has on their kidney function and everything else far outweighs the small, small chance that it would cause an angioedema reaction in a patient. The same thing with antibiotics. You can take certain antibiotics and they can cause a Steven Johnson syndrome, which is like a third degree burn to your body and it can be deadly. But these medications are still extremely safe and they're necessary for their intent. So every medication has a side effect profile. I always joke with my patients, and you can even see this with placebo, on, every, on the side of everyone's medicine bottle, if they have medicine bottles at home, they can look at it right now. And it's going to say something about dizziness, nausea, headaches, something like that. Because almost everybody reports one of those with any medicine in any study you look at. So the idea is that we, we all agree as a populace in America 
that we want our blood pressure to be managed. We want our diabetes to be managed. Um, we want our heart and our, and our blood thinners to be done in a way that protects us. And so we accept the, the infinitesimally small risks to do anything because of the overwhelming benefit. And the vaccine is no different. So it is safe. Now, another question, is it safe in, in, in pregnancy or is it safe for fertility? That's a great question because right now, at this very moment, dozens of pregnant women are dying in an ICU right now. ACOG, um, which is the, the respective body for obstetrics and gynecology, has come out with very strong statements about the efficacy or how good the vaccine is and how safe it is and how strongly they recommend it for pregnant women. Um, you're 50% more likely if you're pregnant and unvaccinated, you're 50% more likely to end up in the hospital or the ICU than a pregnant woman who has been vaccinated. So it has not increased any incidence of miscarriage. It has not caused any birth effects. Women were getting pregnant while they were in the COVID studies last summer. Thousands of women have gotten pregnant since getting vaccinated around the turn of the year. Um, and they're all coming to term with very healthy, happy, you know, hungry babies. Um, when people say, well, does the vaccine cross into the baby when they're, when the baby's in the mommy's tummy? It absolutely does not. Very good data on this. The vaccine does not cross the placenta, but the antibodies from the mom does. So when the mom makes the antibodies after being exposed to this simulation of this vaccine, the vaccine never, never gets to the baby, but all the antibodies that the mother's body made, their own armor, they are now able to give that armor and protection to their babies. And so now babies are being born protected from COVID as a result. It's amazing. It's absolutely amazing. So, um, you know, we talk about, is it good? Is it safe? How about pregnancy? Um, how about kids? Right. That's the big controversy right now. Public schools have opened up. Everyone's going to school. Um, and, and so there's this, you know, in Texas and Florida, we can kind of get into some of the political aspects of it, I guess, so far as geography. Texas and Florida, is they're running off a very similar game plan. Their governors are running by the same playbook. Um, they're writing legislation that prevents mandated masks uh, in schools. And so these public schools are open now uh, with a bunch of kids that can easily transmit this Delta variant very fast. Um, and we're going to see the consequences of that in about the next two weeks, probably the next three months is going to get worse for all of us in healthcare. And we know it and we're a little, we're a little sad about it, but we know it's coming. So the question is, should I vaccinate my kid right now? Moderna, which is what I got, uh, is approved down to 18, but Pfizer is approved down to 12. And it is very safe in, in kids. And in the small number of cases where they had myocarditis, it was predominantly young, healthy males who stayed in the hospital for a couple of days so they could just monitor the lab values and they went home and they were fine. They did not die. Um, there was no significant bad outcomes from it. So I would encourage people to get vaccinated uh, and to vaccinate your teenagers. Um, what we're going to see probably in the next month or so, and I don't have a specific date on it. Everyone keeps saying September, but we should start seeing some studies produced that approve these vaccines to as, as young as six years of age. And this kind of brings up an important concept. And 
And it's one of those things where a lot of people say, my body, my choice, right? That's the, the common thing. It's my choice. I should have the right to choose. I serve this country. I love this country. Um, you know, I swore to protect the Constitution against all enemies, uh, foreign and domestic, right? I mean, we, for all of us that took that oath, we, to this day, all of us take it seriously. Like, just because you get out of the military doesn't mean you give up that oath. I believe in liberty and I believe in freedom of choice. However, it is analogous to a lot of other things that are not safe for you to do when you just think it's yourself. It's not appropriate for you to get drunk and then get in a car and then go down I-35, which is a big highway in Texas. That's irresponsible because unfortunately, and I'm sure you've seen it, James, it's always the drunks that seem to survive somehow, but they killed a minivan of five, right? And, and so when you say it's my choice to drink, okay, it's my choice to get in the car drunk because if I die, I don't care. Well, I, I'm sad to hear that because I think you should care because we don't want you to die. But the fact is, because now you're drunk, there's a very good chance now that you're going to kill a bunch of other people. Um, and then your life's going to be ruined as a result. So we have very harsh laws in Texas for that. Like you'll get charged with manslaughter for it. Um, so that's a, that's a very important analogy to think of. It's like, okay, it is your body, your choice. However, there's a very good chance you're going to get this and you're probably going to survive. Right? The odds are in your favor. Um, you may not get too sick, but you, you might. That's the thing. I can't predict that. Even as a doctor, I can't predict if you're going to be that 25-year-old that's going to be dead in five days. I can't. Um, and that's what sucks, and I want to stop that. But here's what none of us can predict. You, you will never know that 10th person that you expose to the virus that's in your body, and you'll never see them die. But they will die. You won't know who that 10th person is, but it's going to be someone's grandmother. It's going to be someone's uh, five-year-old who couldn't get vaccinated because they're not approved for that young of age. It's going to be someone's wife. It's, it's going to be people. And if you can think outside your bubble a little bit and you're not willing to get the vaccine, then we're going to have to find some alternative things to where maybe you're not directly exposing people as aggressively as you could. And then that's where that whole conversation about masks kind of comes back to the table. That's where this concept about spacing, trying to work from home, all those things become part of that conversation again. Because if you don't do the vaccine, there's only so much we can do to prevent you from spreading it unless we isolate you or you try to isolate your face. The problem is a lot of people that are so adamant about not getting the vaccine happen to be the same people that are adamant about not wearing a mask. And they are adamant about um, not doing mandates, not doing shutdowns. And I don't know if you've seen this, James, but it's all over our news. It's, it's happening in Austin. There are now activists that are anti-mask activists on school grounds attacking teachers and parents and kids with masks on, telling them that they're Nazis and they need to remove their masks. And so we've kind of gotten to this very, very bizarre thing where now I feel like people are saying we're not going to do anything to stop this virus. And I think that's what's exhausting is we're not going to do vaccines. We're not going to do masks. We're not going to do separation. And so I don't know what to do for those people and how to get them back into the conversation. But for everyone else that's vaccine hesitant, it's been out now. We've vaccinated hundreds of millions of people. The data shows it's very effective. The data shows it's safe. It's safe if you're pregnant. It's safe if you want to get pregnant. There is no evidence whatsoever that it impacts infertility at all. 
If you want to go and start a family, get vaccinated, get your, get your spouse vaccinated, get your significant other vaccinated, and then go start your family. It's not going to impact your ability to do that. So it is, it is effective, it is safe, um, and it is available to everybody. So when we think about those vaccines then, when we think about should I do it, should I not, I'm telling everybody you should definitely get these vaccines. Then we hear things like, well, this technology hasn't been out very long. We don't have any long-term data. Well, the good news is when I was taking cellular biology with a professor named uh, Dr. Garcia, back in San Marcos, uh, Texas, where I went to college, they were, they've been talking about messenger RNA as a technique to deliver uh, information to cells all the way back in the 90s. It's a long time ago. It's quite a few decades. And the way it was presented to us through cellular biology was it could be the means of identifying cancer cells and destroying those cancer cells. And at that time, that's very exciting uh, uh, hypotheses to have because anyone who's ever had cancer and got chemo, a lot of your good cells die with the bad cells because chemo is like a nuclear bomb. But what if you could take a sniper? What if you had a sniper instead of a nuclear bomb and you could snipe and take out every single cancer cell in the body and leave every healthy cell. And that's where messenger RNA became this, this delivery tool to make that happen. Very exciting. So people have been studying this for a very, very long time. We finally found a, a beneficial worldwide application for it um, uh, with the COVID vaccine. Specifically, Moderna and Pfizer use messenger RNA technology. The way I would explain that is all the messenger RNA is it's an instruction pamphlet, but your cell does all the work, okay? A lot of people worry, does the messenger RNA impact your DNA? It doesn't, because if you go back to fifth grade biology and you think about all those jello molds we used to make with little bitty pieces of fruit in there to represent a ribosome or a mitochondria or the cell's nucleus, right? The messenger RNA never crosses into the nucleus of the cell. And the nucleus is where the DNA is. The messenger RNA is like the instructions you get with a Lego set. You use them to put the Legos together and then you throw them away. And that's exactly what your body does with the messenger RNA. The messenger RNA comes up to your cell. It's involuted into the cell. It's protected within the medium of the vaccine. It's brought into the cell. And then your cell's own machinery, ribosomes, interpret the messenger RNA and then produce a protein. And it's a spike protein. The reason why coronavirus is named coronavirus is because when you look at it under a microscope, under electron microscopy, it has a, a rim of, of spikes that make it look like a crown. So this, so this messenger RNA comes into your cell. Your own cell then makes this protein. That is not a virus. It is just literally the tennis shoes that the virus wears when it enters your body. So now your cell puts these spike proteins on the outside of the cell and your immune system, your T cells and everything else combine and go, hold on a second. What's wrong with Bobby? Bobby doesn't look right. He's got a lot of stuff all over him. What is, what is all this stuff? And so then it remembers that stuff and then it prepares a defense and then, and then it, it has a debrief. And so the immune system in your body goes, okay, if we ever see that crazy stuff that we saw on Bobby yesterday, we need to destroy it as soon as we see it. Because uh, we can't have that all over our body. We, can, we just can't do that. So the messenger RNA goes in the cell. Your cell uses the instructions to make a protein. The protein goes outside the cell. 
it triggers the immune system and it gives it the simulation that it needs for when the real thing shows up. And you know what happens to all that messenger RNA in that vaccine? Your body destroys it within about two to three days. It never binds with DNA because messenger RNA doesn't do that. It never enters the nuclei of your cells. It never does that. It's not going to alter your DNA. It's not going to change your DNA. It's not going to change who you are. Um, and that's what happens to messenger RNA. And just like the instruction pamphlets that all of us get with our kids in those Lego sets, we're just going to throw that away. And that's what happens with the messenger RNA. Now, the J&J vaccine uses a very weakened form of the adenovirus, which is more along the, the classical model of vaccine uh, distribution, where you take a weakened or destroyed vac- uh, virus, and it can't hurt you, and it can't give you an illness at all. Um, but it has enough of the uh, rubble and the remnants uh, uh, that your body then can recognize the same pathway and develop a defense as well. What's interesting here is that should show you that if the J&J adenovirus, the weakened, uh, attenuated is what we call it, um, a vaccine delivery system is 70 75% effective in the alpha variants of COVID, for example, and yet the messenger RNA vaccines are 90 to 95% effective. That's a success story for messenger RNA vaccine delivery. It's amazing. Um, you know, people don't know where vaccines come from. One of the interesting stories I read a few months ago, which I thought was kind of cool, and I didn't know this. Uh, we may have talked about this in the past, but, you know, we, we use chicken eggs to generate the, uh, the vaccine for the flu. So the influenza vaccine involves chicken eggs. We actually have poultry farms in the United States that are direct, directly secured uh, by our own defense agencies because that is our vaccine factory. And so there's people uh, that are protecting our chickens in middle America because that's how we were able to get the flu vaccines out to our populace. So vaccines have a very cool way of how they have to be made and how they're brought to, 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 the, full, um, to the table to, to deliver the patients. And the messenger RNA technology is phenomenal and it is unique. And the way that we're applying it is new, but the understanding of the technology and the science of it is decades old. And that's also why when you're not even using a virus and we're not using a live virus at all, all of our other vaccines in the history of medicine, none of them have caused long-term bad outcomes when we're not using live vaccine derivatives, right? So that's where it kind of comes back to. Don't be scared of the technology. Don't be scared of the words. Don't be scared of it only because we are truly doing this to help you survive and to help our community do well and to help everyone else who can't get vaccinated, like children who are eight years old, for example. We don't want them to get the virus. Children's hospitals are filling up all across the country. I said it earlier you know, there's no pediatric ICU beds for children up in the Dallas-Fort Worth area. You know, Houston is full. Uh, the Children's Hospitals in Arkansas are full. Louisiana is full. Florida is full. Mississippi, you name it. And that gets us all to what are we dealing with here when people finally say, how do you know the vaccine really works? If you want to ignore everything else I just said, look at the states that have the highest incidence of COVID right now. They are the same states that have the lowest vaccinated rates, period. Every hotbed state in the country right now that is burning to the ground with COVID, it are also the states with the lowest population uh, vaccination. 
And so when we are trying to, what we're trying to do is to fight that by getting our demographics and our communities willing to take the vaccine and to trust us, which I know is hard. Um, it's hard to, to trust people. And so I really feel at this point, we're at this stage of the pandemic where it's going to be your family doctor that you need to talk to or your pediatrician. They're going to be the ones that convince you to finally get it. It may not be me. It may not be people you see on television. That's fine. But it's going to also be the pastors and the preachers. One of the things that I started noticing, I just started doing TikTok videos like a week and a half ago because I didn't know how else to get this message out. And I was tired of seeing these 20-year-olds die. And I, I, I thought in my very simple mind, I was like, all right, I don't know what TikTok is. I think it's a bunch of kids dancing. Uh, but I hear young people are all over it. Maybe I can get a message out to young people. And so start putting this stuff out there to try to get people to understand, hey, this information, this stuff is safe. But the idea is the messaging, it only works if people trust the messenger. And so people tend to trust their primary care doctor. They trust their preacher and their pastor. And so I started having local preachers reach out to me because the people in their congregations were dying. And, and I thanked them for reaching out because I said, they're going to listen to you. They trust you. And I commend you for um, being brave enough to step forward and realize to protect your congregation is going to require some science. And, and you can get that message out. And then it's going to be the, the family members and your close friends that have already gotten the vaccine. And I think that if people who have gotten the vaccine can talk with their loved ones in a very non-confrontational, non-shaming, non-judgmental way and say, hey, look, whether you do it or not, I get it. But if there's something you want to ask me or something you want you're worried about that you want to talk about, let's talk about it. And a lot of times after that, when people realize it is OK to do, um, they're going to get it done. And I'll give you a very, very personal example from my life just a couple weeks ago. One of my best friends, I consider him a brother from high school. Uh, he was there um, and, and, and kind of helped me you know, get back on my feet in high school after my friends died. You know, we talked about that in the first podcast and, you know, losing Joseph and Billy and, and, and everything. And so, uh, my, my friend, um, you know, he, he, he's family. And so, um, he does not trust the government. He does not trust vaccines. He does not trust the CDC. Uh, he really hates big pharma. And, and so, unfortunately, we got into a, a, a disagreement on something I posted about COVID, and, and he started sharing his opinions that I was trying to counter, but, you know, it's hard to do in the context of social media, um, but it, it blew up, and, and, and then that was it. That literally, uh, you know, he, he, he messaged me and, and basically said our friendship is over, um, and, uh, you know, he unfriended me on Facebook and stuff like that. And it broke my heart, but I also felt like I, I've lost my friend and I've lost him to this pandemic. And of all people, I should have been the one who could have convinced him to get it done. Well, I don't know what happened. I kept putting out videos and messages. And um, in the middle of a shift, I get this text from him. And, uh, you know, he apologized. I told him he didn't need to apologize. That I still loved him, of course. But he went off and he got his first shot. He got his first vaccine. And, and that for me was worth whatever crap we were going through for a few days on social media uh, and texting with one another because I know now he's going to be safe. 
And so I really think we're at this point now in the pandemic where it's going to be your friends, your family, your primary care doctors, your preachers, your coaches, your mentors, whoever has gotten the vaccine, talk with them. If you don't want to trust anyone else, trust the people in your inner circle who got it. Um, now, that being said, I would counter that with there's not a lot of people who have doctors in their families. There, there are a lot of people that have family members that are, are nursing or ancillary staff or within the healthcare industry, but may not be physicians. Um, and, and they may be saying things that are, are counter to what I'm saying or counter to what the science is saying. I would recommend at that point, then you're going to have to take it upon yourself to go to some reputable sites and do the things that are necessary, uh, uh, to, to educate yourself because you're not going to be getting good information uh, especially from someone who's telling you that all, all, all of us, people like me, are lying. If you hear that, at least go look and read the literature yourself. Um, every large physician organization completely endorses this. Um, uh, a recent AMA uh, survey showed that 96% of practicing physicians were vaccinated. At one point, only about 40 to 50% of nurses were, but now that's improving. And the recent ANA survey shows almost 80% of nurses and their surveys are vaccinated. Um, Health and Human Services is publishing hospital data, and the hospitals are putting out their employees and the lot numbers and everything else, not by names, but the percentages of their employees now that uh, are now being vaccinated. And then this kind of brings us right back to what is the crux of the controversy now with COVID? And you brought this up, and I posted a TikTok video that um, – got, I mean, up to this point, almost 450,000 views. But it was because, as like most social media, it was controversial and people disagreed. And so that's what drove all the numbers up. And so addressing that, I specifically said that for anti-vax nurses, at this time, hospitals were starting to mandate that their healthcare workers get vaccinated. And there was nurses in our local area of Texas that were staging a walkout and they were going to quit right on the spot. And in fact, they just recently uh, protested outside of our tertiary center um, because they were saying, my body, my choice, you can't force me to get the vaccine. I was specifically addressing that group and not the vaccine hesitant, which again, I think is a different populace. Um, but the anti-vax people who are saying that these vaccines are deadly and dangerous and doing crazy things, which we're not doing. Um, I spoke to them. I said, you know, if you're anti-vax, and you're anti-science, and you don't understand why this vaccine is necessary to end this pandemic, then you don't need to be in healthcare. You need to leave healthcare because you clearly are not staying up to date on evidence. You're clearly being influenced um, by these, these radicalized groups online, and it's not safe for you or the patient or the family members or the community members if you're working in a COVID facility. I think that's very important because I think it is a slightly more nuanced and more complicated argument to mandate first responders to get vaccinated. And I don't want to make it sound like I'm hedging on that, but specifically for people that are inundated for 12 to 14 hours a day in a COVID facility with Delta, with high viral loads, they need to be vaccinated because what do we do when we have no vents and now one of our ICU nurses is going to die from COVID because they chose not to get vaccinated and now they need one of those vents and we don't have a vent for them. What do we do with that? 
And so I do feel that a hospital setting, an ICU setting, an emergency department, a COVID ward in a hospital, everyone there should be vaccinated. And here's the thing. That's not just me. Every large medical organization supports that. The AMA supports that. The ANA, which is representative body of nursing, supports that. Large hospital systems across the country and across the world are now asking their healthcare providers to get vaccinated, and they're giving them a timeline by September, by October, what have you, um, or they're not going to be able to be employed at that facility. On the surface, that sounds very harsh, but our number one responsibility in medicine, it's in my Hippocratic Oath, first do no harm. Do no harm. You will do harm if you serve as a host in a reservoir for a Delta variant and you're working in an ICU. Now, let's take that a step further. Recently, I think Biden just announced this. They're requiring everyone who works in a nursing home, and nursing homes are dependent on Medicare and Medicaid, so that's why he can do this as a federal entity with federal funding and reimbursement. We know that last year 40% of COVID cases were coming out of nursing homes in the beginning in these large clusters, and nursing home patients were dying left and right. So remember on the West Coast, that's where the big outbreak in the nursing home happened. So now they're going to make sure that people that are taking care of our loved ones in nursing homes are also not only vaccinated, but are still wearing all the PPE necessary to protect these patients. And that includes the masks and the gloves and all that kind of stuff. Um, And so I support that. I do not support limiting someone's liberty and freedom of choice. Um, and that is not, I'm not speaking out of two sides of my mouth. It is different when your only responsibility in healthcare is to save a patient and protect them. You have to realize that this virus is killing people right in front of you. And you have an obligation to not facilitate that death. Uh, and the same for nursing homes. Now, What if you're a nurse and you don't want the vaccine and you feel like it's your right? Okay, it is America. It is your right. You shouldn't work in a hospital, so you're not going to be able to work there. You could probably still go work in a plastic surgery office. Maybe you could work in a surgical center. You know, all these elective type things, people are getting pre-screened for COVID before they ever come to you. And so there are avenues to pursue as a nurse um, or as a respiratory therapist or as any other ancillary staff in the hospital Um, you can go out and find other means, but that is your choice. You still have the freedom to choose to do that. It is not coercion because of that. Now let's scale it down so far as um, rapid exposures, continuous exposures. Let's look at the greater first responder community, which is really kind of the heart of of your, uh, your, you know, your, your, your popularity and, and your show. When we look at police officers and we look at firefighters and paramedics and we even look at the military, now different subsets of the first responder community will have higher to lower exposure rates of COVID. Now, we'll tell you, and you know this, um, you know, paramedics and police officers are running into people's living rooms all the time to try to save somebody or, or to intervene. And so you're really not going to know if you're going to walk into a COVID environment or not. But here's some of the things that we know about COVID also is like, well, what if you're doing hand hygiene and you're wearing masks and you're wearing gloves and you're wearing eye protection and you're not in the room for very long 
and you immediately get that patient outside and you're not constantly in their face and you're not in their airway trying to manage their airway, there are some marginal step downs there of exposure risk immediately when you're not in a confined space for a long period of time around what I call the bubble of the COVID patient, which is like the, you know, we talk about six feet, but it's really, I, I imagine our COVID patients walk around like this three or four foot circumferential bubble of just this nasty green virus that you just can't see hovering around them, kind of like Pigpen in Charlie Brown. Well, if you mitigate the proximity to that and you're out in an open space and your mask and your glove, you're not completely protected from the virus by any means. The vaccine is going to, to completely uh, provide you a, an entirely different level of protection. And I highly recommend it. But you could start to argue, well, are there protection protocols we can implement for first responders that would mitigate their risk, knowing that they are assuming this risk when they go into this environment? And I think that there is an argument to be made there. That being said, I also understand why these larger agencies are saying this needs to happen for your safety. Right now, I have the largest uh, fire department service in our, in our region. And we have multiple personnel out with COVID right now. And a few of them have been so sick when they arrived in the ER, their oxygen saturations were in the 70s. These are, James, these are young, healthy firefighters. I mean, I'm talking guys that could throw me over their shoulder and go up seven flights of stairs and probably not even take a break. They're saturated in the 70s. They don't smoke. Um, they're not fat. They don't have medical problems. And I, I got choked up at the end of one of my shifts because I don't want to see I, – I, my fire family is my family. You know what I mean? And I don't want to watch them die. And, uh, but they were adamant about not getting the vaccine. Right now – um, about half of our fire department is vaccinated and the other half is not. And some of them have directly argued with me on social media and, and called me a libtard and, and, and all kinds of other names. Um, even though it, it's, it's, uh, my friends that know me, i I'm very much a conservative. Um, but they are reflexively retaliating. And the thing is, I don't take personal offense to that because I feel like when people speak that way, they're speaking from a place of fear. Um, but I have half of my department right now in a hotbed in Texas of COVID that doesn't want to get vaccinated. One by one, they're coming up to me, calling me, messaging me, saying, look, I'm not really against the vaccine. I just don't trust it. What do I do? And that's where I'm trying to make inroads at this point. We're not at this point right now with our service, with my fire service in our city, we're not mandating the vaccine right now. And again, I'm 60-40 that I'm 60% towards everyone should be vaccinated, but I don't want to force our firefighters to do it. I want to try to reach each of them individually and just convince them with, they know I care about them. They know that. They they bring these patients to me in the ER. I always ask how they're doing. We go over cases together, and I'm hoping that I'm that person that maybe they would trust finally um, and, and get vaccinated. And I feel like that is the inroad to the first responder community. Well, just to, to jump in then, because 
you know, I, I agree with you completely on what you said. I mean, if you're working in a COVID ward around COVID patients, you know, you would hope that being surrounded by, you know, what you're seeing would definitely sway it. And I think the, the fear, the pushback to me screams fucking awful leadership. I can't even use that word in the same sentence as the last two fucking dipshits that we had there. My words, you know, left and right, fucking awful. So, you know, what kills me, as you said, you know, healthy firefighter. Well, as you know, this project started because I buried healthy firefighters over and over and over again and watched folded American yes. flags being given to families over and over and over again. And they were healthy young men and women standing on the drill ground until this job fucking tore them down. So we're not healthy. The, the shift working police officer, firefighter, dispatcher, all these people, are, are slowly being just torn apart. So our, their immune system is crippled. And we saw that reflected in not only the physical health of our doctors and nurses and, and police officers and you know, the irony that someone who's morbidly obese is giving you medical advice is, you know, obviously very grating, but these shifts are breaking us down. So right at the beginning, I was, you know, saying this like, hey, this is before vaccine, but just the people that we're sending out with no vaccine while everyone's hiding in the house are the most, some of the most vulnerable people on the planet. And so what yes. gets me is now, now you're saying if you don't take this vaccine, you're all fired. Well, you were all fucking fine with them being out there before. And so right. there is that knee jerk because you just took, you, you slapped them in the face. They, they work yeah. all those over shifts. They watch some of their colleagues die. Many of them get sick. Many of them, as you said, were residual issues now, and they got to go to a structure fire. One of my friends just got it and recovered, um, and you know he's still struggling. He had a couple of fires, and he said it's still you know hard to breathe. So that is the thing that kills me. If people are dying, that if the right information with good leadership had been put out in the beginning, they would have had the vaccine. Then the blood is on those two administration's hands and that's what needs to change that one that small percentage is not going to get it regardless so so let's take them out of the equation completely the rest of them need to be reassured need to be educated on only on you know the the efficacy and the safety of the vaccination if you so choose but also break down this facade that you're a healthy responder because we are not that's why we die of heart disease and cancer and we stick a gun in our mouths and we overdose and all these things that we see behind the curtain the facade of the fucking superhero these are men and women who are dying in droves from all these other things and this is just another nail in the coffin so that's why i wanted to have this conversation today to appease the fears as you said the indecision because there has been a leadership voice, a void. And the people that were given the microphone, the people that had the voice, made this worse. So as we have seen, now you turn around and go, you will take the vaccine. You will obey me. That's the polar opposite of what actually needs to happen. What needs to happen is people like you and all the other voices that are out there standing in the middle saying, look, I know you're scared. I know you have these issues. I know some of these people are out there saying X, Y, and Z but let's bring you back to the middle again and let me explain the background of these fears. I ended up having the vaccine. It wasn't day one. It was after I spoke to you and Joe and some of these other people. My son got mm -hmm. it and he's uh, 13. But, you know, we're going to be traveling. I'm going to see my, hopefully see my grandmother who's 104. I selflessly want to do whatever I can to make sure I don't bring anything to her. 
So that's, you know, what's so powerful about this conversation. It isn't about government overreach. What's the government have done left and right is government overreach, 100%. But the human kindness and compassion element is that people are dying in ICUs that probably would have had the vaccine had they been led properly and given the right information. And that breaks my fucking heart. It, it, it is, um, it's a very good example of, of what happens with, with bad leadership and bad communication. It's also an example of psychological warfare. You know, when you look at war, I mean, even in the army, you know, we have civil affairs and psyops and all this kind of stuff. Propaganda can demoralize troops, even when they're physically fit and capable of winning that war. If you break their minds, um, they will give up. And in winning the hearts and minds of the populace is always a key component of, of any strategy, right? I mean, we're watching this the, this debacle, this horrific tragic implosion of Afghanistan right now. But there there was 20 good years there where our men and women were out there protecting those kids, protecting those women, protecting that country, and they were winning the hearts and minds and showing them what it looked like to come from a country of freedom where, you know, young women could read and they could they could go to school and um, and, and it's just it that's that's how you lead you lead and you win the hearts and minds of people and you have to fight the propaganda the the hyperbole the vitriol just the the, the lies because if you don't and we didn't soon enough it will start to take over and then people lose the will to fight and they stop believing in you and so now a lot of us in medicine are really trying to hit every single social media tool, networks, interviews, anything we can do to get more people to listen and say, please don't believe uh, the lunacy of this other stuff that's out there. And, and, and that's, that's a fight that we're losing right now for the people that we're trying to reach the most. But I think we're gaining steam the acceleration of, of, of vaccinated patients and the vaccination rate is going through the roof right now. The direct impact of what COVID is doing to the community uh, and to our hospitals. All right. Well, I want to just get to one more topic, and I'm not well versed in this at all. But it was asked by a couple of people when I after I put my video that we were going to do this conversation. So I told them I would ask. Um, there seems to be some sort of. Uh, question about ivermectin you know is it effective why are we not using it um i'm assuming that's to treat people that have covid already so um if you if you have a background understanding i'd love to kind of just learn yeah. before i let you go no i totally do and i'm glad you brought it up because i think this is the piece too that we to kind of conclude uh is crucial because a lot of people say well hey if i don't want the vaccine y'all can still treat me with something right and 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 then that's just as good well, the reality is it's not just as good, but there are some things that are helping people. Um, and we'll first talk about monoclonal antibodies. And so monoclonal antibodies, the, the kind of the – I don't ever want anyone to get sick. I don't like people that are celebrating the fact that this happened, but our governor, Governor Abbott, has COVID right now. And, and he got vaccinated, and he's currently receiving monoclonal antibodies, and he's doing well. He has no symptoms, as expected because he got the vaccine – 
but he went into a large you know auditorium to speak one day and he's been very much against uh you know masks and mask mandates and whatnot um and so a lot of people got exposed i don't think any of that's funny and i don't think any of that's good and i don't think any of that should have happened but that being said he's receiving this monoclonal antibody and so a lot of people are starting to hear more about it and wonder about it and so we're using monoclonal antibodies in an antiviral medication called uh, remdesivir and then we use a steroid called dexamethasone and these are some of the medications that we use if you get COVID and you come into the hospital one of the things that we also do is we position your body where we may lay you on your tummy or we may lay you on your side and rotate you around throughout the day while we have you on high pressure mass of oxygen to get your oxygen levels to improve and go up. So there are medications that we use and the monoclonal antibodies that we're using have evidence in the literature that they are marginally effective, which is why we're using them. There is some small benefit to using them and where we tend to see even more of a benefit is people that have mild to moderate uh, disease from COVID now places in the country are setting up infusion centers for monoclonal antibodies. So Florida, right? DeSantis was was saying this was going to be his response team, and he's sending out you know these these monoclonal antibody response teams, and 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 for example, in Texas, we now have infusion centers, and so in in Travis County, kind of the central part, you know, the Austin area of Texas, now there are some infusion centers where what they will do is give you four injections in your abdomen over about 20 minutes of antibodies. And then they watch you for a little bit and then you go. And what those antibodies have done in the mild to moderate cases is it seems to slow uh, the progression to severe illness and death. And that if we can't prevent you from getting it and we can't prevent you from getting mild to moderate disease, we can at least prevent you from dying from it and progressing to severe disease. And so there's some promising information about that. Dexamethasone or Decadron is a steroid that we use. If you remember way back when COVID started, a lot of people say, no, don't use NSAIDs, don't use Motrin, don't use steroids. Um, that was that was all hogwash. And, and at the end of the day, you know, this inflammatory process from COVID uh, needs to be treated with things that can modify the inflammation. And that's where kind of dexamethasone or steroids come into play. So these are those are the things that have been shown in the data on the same websites that I, I talked about earlier that you can go read about yourself that show some good positive clinical outcomes, but not nearly as impactful as we would like for them to be, uh, which is why they're moving on to a new kind of um, uh, medication that is about how how the immune system is receiving uh, and, and deploying kind of the attack on the virus um, in, in addition to the monoclonal antibodies. And so there'll be some stuff coming out about that uh, shortly. So now moving into other things that people talk about and think, well, this would treat COVID and this, this is where we lost a portion of the public because of these people. And I don't even like to use their name, but I'm referred to them because people need to understand these, these frontline doctors that came out last year um, and, and were utilized uh, politically to try to push back on this concept of severity of COVID, the need for masks, the need for mandates. And what happened is that people didn't understand the disease. They needed somebody in a white coat to go out and, and present themselves as an, as an expert and, and throw something bizarre out there. And that's what these frontline people did. And remember, one of, the, one of the female physicians, you know, talked about demon semen and how demons possess you in your sleep. She believes in that. And she's the one out there telling everybody that, you can take hydroxychloroquine and zinc. Well, 
they have looked at over and over and over again, we've wasted resources and man hours proving to the world that hydroxychloroquine does not benefit these patients at all. Um, it, it does not. And so that's kind of fallen to the wayside, if you've noticed. Nobody's really talking about hydroxychloroquine anymore, right? Um, there's still people out there saying zinc and vitamin C and all this other kind of stuff. And there's really no significant studies that show that those make any improvements. Um, but at the same time, if you need to supplement with certain things um, and you feel better over time by doing so, like taking vitamins and vitamin C and whatnot, then by all means, it's not harmful. It's potentially helpful. Go ahead and do it. And so that's usually what we recommend. Now we get into ivermectin. Now this is the soup du jour of the conspiracy theories and controversy currently online. And uh, first of all, ivermectin, I'm just going to put the nail in the middle of the, of, the, of the vampire's chest right now. Ivermectin does nothing for COVID. Zero. Nothing. Absolutely nothing. It is not beneficial. It is not helpful. It does not protect you from dying. It does not protect you from severity of disease. And yet, everybody and their dog, including their dog, are going out to the local vet stores and the, and the uh, farm supply stores and the feed stores, and they're just snatching up ivermectin left and right. There was a video, and this, this guy is an idiot. He's an absolute idiot, and I don't, I don't like name-calling people, um, but I, I will tell this to his face. Recently, there was a very viral YouTube video of a doctor who claimed to be a functional family medicine doctor, which isn't even like a real thing. Um, and, and he's at this school, Mount Vernon, which I believe was in Indiana. And it was a school board meeting where he's saying that he's treated 15 patients with ivermectin, right? Well, first of all, if you're a physician worth your salt, um, you're not going to ever claim anecdotally that 15 patients in your clinical practice is enough to justify a therapeutic intervention, right? Even if you see 5,000 people anecdotally in your practice, that does make you an expert, but you still need unbiased evaluation of, of what you're claiming. And that's where these randomized controlled trials come in. People don't understand how studies are done a lot of times. And so what you really want to do is that if you have an experimental drug and you want to ask the question, is this drug helpful? So we're going to use ivermectin as an example. Then what you want to do is you want to pick a large number of people that are going to get ivermectin and you're going to pick a large number of people that don't get ivermectin. And you're going to double blind the study, which means the people giving the medicine don't know what they're giving. And the people receiving the medicine don't know what they're receiving. And you're doing that to eliminate bias, right? You start your scientific, everybody who hated or loved science fair in, in elementary and high school, the, the scientific method was about developing a hypothesis. So that's how all these studies come about, right? So the hypothesis in a lot of studies was ivermectin may have some positive impact on COVID. And so you want to eliminate bias because the people that are leading the study believe that it will make a difference. So they're already biased. So you try to eliminate from that, you know, their bias and then the patient's bias. And so then you, you don't know if you're giving the person a Flintstone vitamin and you don't know if you're giving them a, an ivermectin tablet. Uh, or, you know, you're infusing them with, with placebo, which is water, and you're infusing them with ivermectin. All right, so you don't know. And then the results come out, and you analyze the data and the results. And time and time and time and time again, the studies show that ivermectin does nothing. 
I'm going to point to two big things right now. One, everyone was trying to argue with me uh, on these TikTok videos about how that study in India, they keep referring to the study in India on ivermectin. That study was pulled um, because of the lies and fabricated data. They duplicated the people they had in different aspects of the study, and now they can't find the researchers. There was another uh, study out there uh, about ivermectin and COVID, very similar, um, same thing, fabricated data. Now, I'm going to take this moment to take everyone back in time. When Jenny McCarthy, that comedian, that playmate, who started espousing the idea that vaccines caused autism. And she was basing that on a very biased uh, researcher who fabricated information and data that he claimed showed a link between autism and vaccines, that vaccines in children were leading to this large amount of cases of autism that we're now seeing. That study was a lie. That study has been removed. It has been shredded. It has been destroyed by all kinds of, of data analysts. Um, and study after study after study since then to prove to parents that it was still safe to take a vaccine, all of that was done and proved without a doubt vaccines do not cause autism. But think about the resources, the money, and the man hours spent on something we already knew because we were trying to regain the population that was no longer vaccinating the kids. And then we had kids dying from measles. Um, and so that's what a lie can do. That is what a fake study can do is it can kill people. And that is probably what I'm most really fucking pissed off about right now. And, and I can already feel my blood pressure going up. I am sick of the liars out there. I am sick of the criminal activity of people who made shit up and created this vaccine hesitancy, and now people are dying in front of me, and I can't stop it because of these liars. The vaccine does not magnetize your blood. It does, it does not have a microchip in it. It doesn't change your DNA. All these crazy things that people put out there, now people don't want the vaccine, and they're dying because they believe these liars. These liars are responsible for these people's deaths. And now medical licensing boards are going after these doctors, and they're going to take their medical license. And so you got this guy at this, at this classroom in Mount Vernon that everyone's like tagging me in and sharing all over the place. And everything he said was completely wrong. But nobody in that room knew that because he was a doctor. He presented himself as a doctor. So just like him, just like those frontline doctors um, that, are, that are terrible human beings, and just like all these other liars out there saying ivermectin works, it doesn't work. And so now I'm going to give you the data that shows it doesn't work. And it's a shame that we had to keep spending so much time on this. But it's important because we still love y'all. We still love people and we want you to trust us and we don't have any ulterior motive here. Oxford just released like a few weeks ago a very, very large study. We did it, they did a Cochrane analysis. They looked at randomized, you know, double-blinded controlled studies at multiple different centers. I mean, it, this is like the creme de la creme, the gold standard of good research, good literature. You remove the biases. You look at all these patients, all these different medical centers, and they showed absolutely zero benefit from using ivermectin for COVID. Absolutely no change in improvement and duration of symptoms and survivability and mortality, all that stuff. Zero, zilch, none. And that is the best form of the most non-biased, research that we can ever produce as a scientific community. Ivermectin does absolutely nothing for COVID. Now, Oxford 
is doing a prospective study. So they are studying forward and they have now recently, and if you go you know, to their website and look at all their stuff, they're going to put ivermectin into one of their trial arms because they're trying to do exactly what we had to do to prove that vaccines didn't cause autism. The amount of damage that these liars have made now means that we have to produce all these other studies to hopefully bury the question once and for all, ivermectin does nothing. And here's why that matters to me, because if you're choosing to get ivermectin, which has absolutely no scientific basis in managing COVID, because you believe somebody on YouTube, nobody blames you. You trusted somebody who presented themselves as, as a know-it-all, as an expert. But you should not choose something that has no benefit and some potential harm. You should never choose that over what we have been able to prove time and again now with this vaccine that it's effective. And in the end, we just want you to live. There's no vast monetary big pharma conspiracy where doctors are getting thousands of dollars for talking about this vaccine. You know, for a lot of people, this COVID vaccine is free. Free. And, and if you want, you can drive up to your local pharmacy and get a COVID shot. It's, it's crazy. Everybody who works at a hospital that's now being asked to get vaccinated, it's free. They don't pay anything for it. It's a free vaccine. There's no money here. There's no, there's nothing here other than trying to save lives. So these alternative therapies that people keep pushing, I don't know why. I don't know what their motivation is. Surely some of them um, will have an epiphany at some point in their career and they'll realize that they were responsible for thousands of deaths because they lied. And they convince people not to get the one tool that we have to save them and protect them. And that's on them. That's on their shoulders. And they're going to have to live with that for the rest of their life. But I absolutely, unequivocally hate ivermectin, has absolutely no role in COVID. And I will also tell you this. I'm a man of science. I practice evidence-based medicine. And if there is a huge study, if they have a multi-center randomized, double-blinded, controlled studies that are done at good centers with good researchers and is a statistically powerful study that somehow shows ivermectin is beneficial, I'm going to follow the guidelines and the evidence and I will start using it. But to this date, there is nothing in any good literature, good study that shows any benefit of ivermectin. And Oxford literally put the nail in the coffin with this most recent study they produced after looking at 10 other studies for their Cochrane review, that there's no benefit in ivermectin. So hopefully I beat that horse into glue. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you did. Well, just one thing you know, before we close that I want to mention, because this is through my lens as well, another area that's called complete discrediting where, you know, from the people supposedly telling us that, you know, this is for us, we care about lives, is the fact that obesity diabetes the mental health all these other contributing elements you know the autoimmune disease the the you know the whether it's a dietary element whether it's the the exercise element you know whether it was getting outside you know closing the gyms and keeping fast food open that's another thing in my community i've seen is is another failure of leadership if you're going to be up there talking about this disease and and improving outcomes the last year and a half, there should have been a parallel conversation with bringing as much good information on wellness, with addressing, you know, whether it's, I mean, they've got a new school year now. The same shitty fucking fast food is being served. The same soda machines are in all the hallways. You know, we had so many other elements to really address underlying, you know, comorbidities to improve outcomes. And that was completely thrown to the side. So I just want to put, it's not a question. It's not anything other than another layer of the distrust 
is because the people standing on there saying they care so much about Americans' health are the same ones that are, you know, not doing a damn thing about industrial farming, chemicals on our food, all these things that are contributing to our deaths. So I think from my lens, from anyone in the wellness space, that's another area that's caused distrust because, you know, we were asked to trust pharmaceutical companies and politicians. Neither have known, you know, known for their ethics overall, even though, as you said, the vaccines are a separate thing. The drugs that are pumped into this country, the profits that are made over sick Americans, it's another another layer that I think that we are fighting uphill because you have this, you know, this effective vaccine, but it's amongst all that nastiness and, and, you know, profiteering that you're trying to fight against as well. No, I agree. And I think that, you know, there's there's a couple arguments to be made there, but, you know, in the midst of a pandemic, um, it, it is important to have the the total approach to health as part of the conversation. Now, you can lose people with too much messaging of too many different things at once, but understanding that there should be a fundamental process from the leadership. And when I talk about that, I mean, like the White House all the way down, there has to be this understanding that, look, we've told doctors have told people for decades what obesity does, diabetes does, high blood pressure does, atherosclerotic disease does. And that's not even counting mental health. You know, you and I have talked about mental health a lot, you know, alcoholism and drug addiction and all this other kind of stuff. Um, all of that has to be addressed in total um, as a leading aspect of, of importance. But the problem is, is that it's really expensive to eat healthy. And, and when, when you're looking at poverty and you're looking at the poverty line and you're looking at the number of people who have lost jobs last year and how that's impacted the economy, um, you know, go, go to your grocery store and look and see what's out there. And that, that cheap old white bread, a whole loaf is 99 cents, but maybe the really, really good bread that's whole wheat and all this other kind of stuff on organic, that might be $6, right? And so we're not going to ever answer this question. This is really up to economists and policies and farmers and, and agricultural experts, but we need to find a way to subsidize farming and, 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 provide the food products that directly lead to nutrition and health and obesity. And we need to make it cheaper for people to be able to purchase that. We need to reward people's behavior for not buying Twinkies and honey buns and white bread, um, but buying the, the, the fresh vegetables and buying the, you know, the, the fruits that are out there and the, the organic poultry. There needs to be some kind of benefit there so that people that are struggling financially can still afford to live that way. One of the most important selective messages in medical school um, that I went through was this, this understanding of the context of what poverty does to the human physiology when it comes to dentition and cavities, when it comes to failure of having uh, primary care and preventative medicine opportunities, poverty impacts all of that. And so we're not going to solve all the world's problems with that. But if you look at it, a means as a government and found a way to provide healthier options for people it begins with the public school system so i agree and it begins by teaching those kids and making activities and, and pe and everything more of a core of the curriculum and not taking pe out of the curriculum uh, teaching people how to work out teaching people how to eat that is how you grow the next generation of healthy people and so i, I agree wholeheartedly with that it needs to be a part of the conversation it should always be but for now 
and the time it would take to change someone's lifestyle and to affect their weight and to impact their obesity, that's going to take months in the making, right? Most people who post their fitness journey, it takes six months to two years before they finally get to the finished product. But in now in the immediacy, on top of eating healthy, avoiding uh, you know excessive alcohol, avoiding smoking, all that kind of stuff, getting good sleep, um, we need to get people out there to talk to their doctors, their pastors, their family members, their friends, and get vaccinated. And if we do that, it's not going to make everything go away. It's going to help everyone live. And I think that's the messaging that has to be heard. Beautiful. Yeah, I, I disagree with the uh, the expense. I think that's a, an urban legend because I think, you know, if you do bolster local farms, it's much cheaper for a dude to grow potatoes in his own garden and then just walk over to you and say, here, that's 50 cents. But the way that we do food and industrialized farming, you know, it, we, we've created that myth as well, I think. Yes, if I go to Whole Foods, I'm going to spend a fortune. If we, all that money that was flung this last 18 months, if some of that had gone to keeping the outdoor spaces open, maybe, you know, just cleaning them more often, but allowing people to be outside, allowing, you know, throwing money at the local farms, you know, we, we could have, we had a year and a half. As you said, it takes two years. We had 18 months to improve this country's health. And it was comp not only disregarded, comorbidities were actually poo-pooed at the beginning, you know. So that's the thing is it's not, again, it's not, it's not a debate. It's just purely we have to have those conversations as well because this COVID eventually will go away, but all the, the other things that are killing us will stay, continue to kill us in genocidal numbers. No, I agree. And uh, it's, uh, it's something we'll just have to keep beating the drums uh, for that to happen. Absolutely. Well, Chris, I want to say thank you so much. We've been talking almost two hours. Um, you know, you, you've educated me. You know, I've had my family members and some of the things that I was thinking, you know, are incorrect. And, you know, now I've, I've learned a lot. And, you know, like I said, I got the vaccine. I'm also opposed to forcing first responders to get it. What I want is leadership, uh, education, so we can get most of the people to feel comfortable with their choice and therefore be part of the solution. No, I agree. And I think if we keep working on it and we use empathy and education, uh, we'll be able to get a lot of the vaccine hesitant uh, into into a safer circle. Um, as all, always, man, thank you for having me. Um, I, I, I always enjoy uh, talking to you. And, and for those of you that I don't know, James doesn't ever just reach out to me to do a podcast. He's always checking on me, too. Uh, and I appreciate that because I I, I figure he could probably figure out that I was not looking too awesome, as tired as I was. Uh, and I appreciate the fact that, that you look out for us too, James. So thank you for doing what you do and, and for having this podcast and for having all of us here. And, uh, of course, as always, I wish you a lot of success. I know you have some big podcasts coming up. I'm excited uh, to listen to those. And um, I always wish you the best. 